Hello and welcome to the Bike Radar podcast, brought to you from the team behind Cycling Plus, MBUK and BikeRadar.com. Welcome to the Bike Radar podcast. I'm Rob Spenning from Bike Radar and this is an episode of Bike Radar Meets. And today we are meeting with Ned Bolting. You probably know him best as ITV's Voice of Cycling. He's the Tour de France commentator, but he's also an author. He's doing stage shows now. And of course, most importantly, he is a Cycling Plus columnist. Ned, hello. I prefer the version that you've edited out, Rob, where you called me Channel 4's, Channel 4's commentator. This is, by the way, for all the podcast listeners, this is take three. We were anticipating slightly more, but I've enjoyed I've enjoyed the full starts. It's so funny how many people it's so funny how many people think that they're watching the Tour de France on Channel Four. I mean, uh, they still, you know, I just I I sort of hanker back for those days. I suppose it was the early eighties when I was watching uh, watching the tour on Channel Four with that amazing theme tune that I could probably I can I can I get the I get the two mixed up I get the Channel Four um, Craft tune work, and yeah. the ITV tune yeah sort of all mixed up and um, but they're they're both brilliant but but you are the ITV commentator and we will not be editing back in the mistakes okay all right <laughs> I promise <laughs> well maybe we will I wanted people to get this veneer of professionality that I I I've tried to portray over the last decade and a half but you, you've you've ruined it for me but anyway ned how are you i'm all right i'm all right i'm mightily cheered by uh, your introduction it's been good fun yeah very good very good i mean it's so it's 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 the middle of july yeah. as we're recording this yeah. we're in we're in um the uk i'm in i'm in the, the southwest you're in london and we are chatting via um a very dodgy um microsoft teams link which has already gone wrong three times um which is the new normal but for you, this is a new normal like no other new normal, isn't it? It's it's the middle of July. You should be in France. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> You're not. Yeah. And it's, it's, um, I mean, I kind of, I, you know, ever since we all locked down in the middle of March, I, uh, I saw this one coming and I was kind of dreading July. Um, and the closer it got, the more I started to dread it. And then when we actually hit the date when the, the tour should have been starting, actually in the end of June, um, I, it hit me more profoundly than I was anticipating. And I, and I can only conclude, Rob, that it's, um, it, 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 I mean, I've written about it quite extensively, but actually to experience July without the Tour de France has, um, has just made it very clear to me quite how, how dependent I am on it, how, uh, how, how much it kind of has overtaken my life, how the place it occupies. And, um, I kind of knew that in theory, <clears throat> but 2020 has, has taught me that in practice. It's quite alarming, really. It's a <laughs> quite psychologically quite needy person if I depend on a, a bicycle race with 170-odd people riding bicycles around France for my own spiritual well-being. Are you, are you feeling sort of a sense of, a sense of loss? I mean, you said it hit, hit you quite profoundly. Um, do, do, you know, I mean, lockdown has affected lots of people in different ways. But um, but is it is it sort of was it that hard? Was it really a proper sort of oh my, oh my god? You know, I'm I'm not in France. I'm not at the tour. I'm in London. What's happened? I mean, a- absolutely. For, for me, the um, those three weeks and the and the and the kind of like best part of a week before the race starts are like they are the most important touchstones in my calendar year. You know, so if you, for example, if you're one of those people who quite likes Christmas, I'm not, but if you are, um, you know, uh, uh, and you kind of like, you love all the tradition of putting up the tree and, uh, and cooking it, you know, and kind of like, and that really floats your boat and everything, uh, uh, then, then that matters to you. And if someone just took it away from you, that would be, a, there'd be a great sense of loss. But for me, you know, the, the rhythm of arriving at a different location each year that has its own flavor and its own distinctive characteristics where the Grand Depart will be and kind of absorbing all that uh, ind- independent and unique atmosphere um, is just one of the many, many, of the succession of key moments that um, every three weeks entails. You know, the, the, the Tour de France route may be different every year, but there are certain touchstones. You know, there will be a Grand Départ. There will, there will be a moment where we see, for the first time, the Alps. There will be a moment where we head south through the flatlands outside the Pyrenees and, the, and that, that mountain range just rears up in front of us. Um, and, and there will be that moment towards the end where traveling through the night, we, we 
you know, enter the peripherique and we see the Eiffel Tower with its searchlights in the in the nighttime sky at Paris. And all this stuff is um has carries great emotional resonance. And because now this would have been my 18th Tour de France, it's got a, a kind of freight full of memories that are associated with it. You know, an entire generation of my life has kind of come and gone uh, in, the, in that frame. I think it, I sort of wanted to actually sort of contextualise it, I suppose, a bit for people who who may not know yeah. you or may have only sort no, of no, started watching the yeah. tour in the last couple of years and, and possibly only know you as the tour commentator along with um, that David Miller guy um, is actually, yes, like you said, it would be the 18th. It, it will be, I mean, it should still happen and we'll get onto that in a, in a, in a minute, but it would have been your 18th tour. So 2003 was your first tour de France. I, I would have known you. I think I, I did look up on Wikipedia as I like all good journalists. I thought, oh, let's see what ne- Wikipedia says. And it says Ned Bolting, uh, football, cycling and darts. And we'll talk about darts later, obviously, because who doesn't want to talk about darts. But, <laughs> um, but so 2003 was your first tour before that you basically, it was sky sports and ITV football. So, so, uh, let, I guess let's go back to 2003 and where this journey started. You know, how did that happen? Were you a cycling fan? And did you did you volunteer to be on the Tour de France, or were you were you were you just asked to do it? And you thought, yeah, why not? Let's give that a go. Yeah, I mean, it was mostly that. I'd actually um, I, I'd now here's a sort of this is a bit of a niche nerdy little cul-de-sac. You might have taken me down here, but um. You know, I understand people people are listening to this podcast all across the world. So there may be like a large portion of the planet that's just going to tune out for 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 the next 30 seconds or so. But for the UK market, um, you may remember you may remember a very short-lived experiment called the ITV Digital Platform and the ITV Sport Channel, which existed for 10 glorious months before it crashed and burned. Um, I, yes, left the, I, I left the great monolith of Sky Sports to join this new startup. Um, within 10 months, I was, um, I, I was unemployed. And I was kind of uh, tossed occasional uh, bits of freelance work by the main ITV channel in football, who had a lot of football rights uh, back then. Um, But it wasn't really enough uh, to to call it a livelihood or a kind of proper uh, living. Um, And it was around about then that... that, uh, um, ITV got hold of the rights to broadcast the Tour de France um, because Channel 4 uh, didn't want them any longer. They'd invested in another sport. They'd invested in cricket and they they thought they'd taken cycling as far as they could. And so um, ITV were actually gifted them uh, for the price of nothing. I mean, they they were free. They were handed to them on a plate, but they didn't quite have enough boots on the ground to go out and cover the event. And it was then that my boss at the time just rang me up and said, here, um, go and do this silly bicycle race in France that we don't really understand. And I went, okay, you know. Um, uh, so I certainly didn't volunteer for it. Uh, I, but I, I li- to be brutally honest, Robert, I guess I just thought, oh, that sounds like three weeks' work. <laughs> three weeks' work um, in France. In, fr- in <laughs> France, which was a big draw. I mean, but in my... So did, did you have any sort of cycling uh, abs- knowledge? Absolutely none. I do remember when I was about... 12 um and i grew up in bedford which is in the middle of nowhere in provincial england um i do remember my dad buying me a new bike from a small ad in the bedfordshire on sunday newspaper and we went around a secondhand bike and i think it cost 50 quid and um we went around to this bloke's backyard and he hauled it out and it was a rally something or other i can't quite remember what and the guy who sold it to my dad i remember he got it out and he leant it against the wall and he said see that bike there that's, that was on the Tour de France. And we both looked at him and both kind of like slightly doubted him, but didn't know enough about the Tour de France to kind of question whether or not that was true. <laughs> so that was kind of my extent of knowledge about the Tour de France when I actually was sent in 2003 to go and cover the race. I'd heard of one rider, one rider was the, out of 198 back then. I'd only heard of one of them. Uh, you you can probably figure out who that was, and um, I certainly didn't know that there were teams. <laughs> so so that rider, I, I'm guessing, as someone that you've ended up working with um, quite extensively, uh, I'm hoping it's no, is it, is it, was, it no, wasn't him. You are referring to David Miller. No, I, I, I'm not. I'm thinking of um, Mr. Boardman. Surely, no, surely no, it was him. Boardman, was it? It Boardman, him. Uh, Boardman wasn't in the bicycle race. Uh, I think his not, last tour. Oh no, of course, two thousand three. Yeah, yeah two thousand three. Yeah, stopped already long, on the it's tour. It's not given up. <laughs> um, Miller was on the bicycle race, but I hadn't heard of him. Mm. So um, no, the rider I had heard of was Lance Armstrong. Oh, uh, oh yeah, I'd forgotten about him. 
but yeah, so so no no cycling knowledge. I mean, to to be honest, I suppose two thousand and three, mm. you wouldn't have really been alone in the UK. It wasn't what it is now. Well, I think you've hit the nail on the head. I mean, I was, you know, I, I think I've been incredibly fortunate to have been freighted into um, uh, uh, cycling at the time that I was, because uh, as, as you've rightly said i mean there were there were plenty of people who knew about the tour de france in infinite and intimate detail in the uk but 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 when i say plenty it was really quite a small number in the in the grand scheme of things and um there wasn't like a sliding scale of people who knew a bit about it there was just people who knew an awful lot about it and then 98.72% of the population who knew not not a single thing about it nothing right and that was so that was the um that that was the the market that was available to cycling to sort of conquer and it was it, i think it really literally was around about then 2003 that everything started to change uh, it would have been lance armstrong's fifth uh, tour de france victory uh, okay you can take your view on whether you think it was or wasn't the the record books will tell you that it technically wasn't um but it was an incredibly uh, unpredictable and wildly fascinating race to go and cover that edition um and i think it it started to catch the eye. Uh, and it wasn't that long before from, and this is a British perspective, obviously, it was only five years later that Mark Cavendish appeared on the scene. I mean, he, he initially raced in 2007, but in 2008, that's when he started winning. And that was the next big seismic leap. So I think my learning curve coincided uh, quite neatly and quite uh, for, fortunately with, for me, from my perspective, with an entire nation learning about the race at the same time. Yeah, I, I guess, you know, even though I managed to forget that he even existed, um, that Lance had bought cycling in onto, not necessarily onto the front pages and, and the back pages. It still was a very much um, a minor news, sport news story up against football, cricket, rugby. But Lance was certainly someone who made cycling known in the UK. But you made me feel quite, yeah, it makes me feel quite old, sort of just thinking that Cav, Mark Cavendish, 2007 2008 that kind of really sort of puts a puts it into perspective how long actually i've been involved in cycling as well so thanks <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but but yeah so so that first tour i mean you actually eventually ended up writing a, a book about your sort of experiences on that that sort of tour how i won the yellow jumper mm. which uh, i kind of think the title says says it all about and, and you, you know pretty self-deprecating about your knowledge then but so did you sort of take to it like a, a duck to water or was that one of the steepest learning curves you've ever experienced as a journalist well i mean it's a it's a bit of both rob i i am um, certainly a steep learning curve but it, the, the one thing that i took very naturally to was um uh, uh, loving the event. I mean, I, I didn't have to contrive an affection or kind of from the very instant I saw the prologue in 2003 in Paris, um, I, I was, I was, uh, completely baffled, but, 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 but absolutely captivated by it. I thought I don't understand it, but I want to understand it. And it took me, um, took me a surprisingly long time to be able to speak with any degree of confidence, um, about the sport. Uh, so I think I had uh, an appropriate humility about my approach to the sport for years. I mean, years. Uh, because it is that, you know, you can't insult people who do understand the sport. You can't pull their, uh, the, the wool over their eyes and hoodwink them. They get, they get that you're new to the sport. Um, so I think you have to be, you have to take things to baby steps. And um, it took me a long, long time to, to really feel like I could intuitively understand and read a bike race. And Probably, actually, it wasn't until eventually I was persuaded to move from reporting and interviewing the riders and uh, uh, presenting on other bike races through to commentating, um, which happened in 2016, that I actually finally kind of that sealed the deal for me in terms of I could relax and, and begin to think, yeah, maybe I do, you know, maybe maybe this is a sport I do feel comfortable now talking about. Yeah. I mean, how was that, 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 that swap from... Um from being a, a reporter to to the to the commentator because you, you took over from Phil Liggett and and the late Paul Sherwin and and they were you know they were the voice of cycling I, I've already mistakenly said you were the voice of Channel 4 cycling but Phil and Paul when I was growing up yeah they, they uh, literally were on, yeah yeah I mean that must have been daunting uh, and you know you and David a new David Miller uh, former pro a new commentary team that must have been both 
exciting and scary. You started with the Vuelta, didn't you? And then moved on to the Tour. Yeah, we had a kind of year of doing the lesser races with respect to the to the Vuelta um, before they chucked us in at the deep end in 2016. And, and this was the end of a quite a long, quite a number of years when ITV were already considering a succession plan. You know, moving on from Phil um, after this long-standing and wonderful relationship that the same production company actually still, you know, works for ITV that used to work for Channel Four. So their relationship goes back decades, literally. Um, and it, and I have nothing but admiration and respect for Phil Liggett's commentary. I think it's um, you know, iconic is absolutely the right the right word to use. So that was one of the, one of the many reasons why I was hesitant to even try. You know, um, but I did I did think that. Um, eventually when I, when they did say, we think you could probably do it, I did sort of think I, well, okay, maybe, but the one thing I do want to do is wait until David Miller has stopped racing because I kind of thought in the back of my head, there's probably only one pro I want to work with at this. And, um, and I want to start with someone who is also new to it, if you like, um, so that we both start from, we we both start from the same base and uh, and we we don't we don't copy anyone else's style we don't come with any other influences we 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 kind of f- eventually work towards finding our own our own sort of rhythm and our own style which uh, to be fair has probably taken us a few years it was it was very difficult at first rob because people aren't you know people aren't prepared for change they don't instinctively like change what one of the great joys of the tour de france is it doesn't really change you know the a chateau is a chateau a sunflower is a sunflower paris is paris mountains are mountains phil liggett and paul Sherwin were phil liggett and paul Sherwin, and it's very very deeply lodged in in people's understanding of the race so i do remember you know tentatively of the first week of the 2016 tour de france daring to dip a swipe a finger into social media and it was pretty mm. brutal, to be honest, at first. Well, I, I can imagine. I can imagine. I'm sorry about that. I couldn't resist. <laughs> <laughs> but it, but it, like all things, it fizzled out. It, and and now, yeah. uh, you know, it's a very friendly and supportive environment, by and large. So, so why David? You, I mean, you, you, I guess you'd interviewed him and done some work with him. So, what was it that sort of made you think that you know the guy who would be a really good um, co-commentator is is David Miller? And obviously, uh, people who who know the sport will know David's David's history um, and what happened to him in in. Uh, yeah, 2004 it would have been wouldn't it because that's when I got married um so uh and you know the, the, the subsequent doping ban and then the, the way he sort of uh behaved since um sort of been a very you know a, a huge advocate for change in cycling and clean cycling so so what was it was it what was it about David was it that kind of really interesting backstory was that part of it and obviously he's uh he's a he's a great talker I mean that's another thing and he's got a huge amount of knowledge in, in the sport have I sort of answered the question? You, you, you have kind of answered the you have kind of answered the question. The only, I mean, absolutely all those things. You know, his doping past um, is, uh, you know, doping will never go away from cycling completely. And uh, I was very aware that um, from time to time we would be, you know, commentating on bike races which had uh, which had been tainted by doping, or, or you know, we'd be we'd be talking about riders who had themselves served um, suspensions and. You know, it's it's a conversation that needs to be had, and it's an issue that can't be ducked. And um, if you're going to get someone to talk about it, as from time to time David has on air, um, then it, it is probably best if you get someone who understands what it is to have been in that system and what it is to have transgressed and doped, and to come out the other side. Um, so I think that was of a you know, because I, I think I think uh, that cycling does itself great credit. Uh, in the in the sense that I think by and large the cycling public are quite wise to the sport and they understand its 360 degree nature you know they don't you can't really see things in black and white in cycling because if you do it'll drive you mad and if you do you'll only be getting half the picture you know so I think people have a great a general understanding that you you, you have to be honest about you have to be honest about uh, about these issues um and just to add to you know another reason why for me, David Miller's uh, career, D- David Miller was the guy I wanted to work with, was because my entire, my literally my entire understanding of the Tour de France in particular, bike racing in general, has been filtered through watching him, my experience of watching him. It was my first day on my first tour in the prologue in Paris, where the, where he was within, you know, a whisker of winning the race and he and his chain came off on the cobbles, which forced me to, to do, kind of come up with that famous... Um, 
yellow jumper comments live on telly because so so that literally day one Miller was there you know I came back in 2004 for my second tour Miller wasn't there because as you've identified he'd started a two-year doping suspension you know what what's that all about um 2004 and five he missed 2006 he was back you know by 2007 he was um he was he was starting to reinvent himself on the wheel and 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 you know stage what was it stage one from london to canterbury he was doing those kind of he was doing a very david miller thing he was kind of off the front on his own being emotional you know 2009 he was he nearly won in barcelona 2012 he won clean in the year that's you know is almost a footnote for that year of british success but david miller won a, a stage you know from a breakaway so um, and then to see how hard it was for him to accept the waning of the years and the and the fading of his powers, and then for his entire his retirement to be forced on him, I'd seen the entire trajectory of his career kind of unfold, and I'd been I'd been right up close and personal with him during that time, you know, in, including including um, when he was arraigned to appear before the magistrates um, on these doping charges in two thousand and four. I, I doorstepped him at the court in Nanterre to the west of Paris and driven overnight to be there and sat on a bench outside this tiny little magistrate's office where he was being arraigned and uh, fell asleep <laughs> and only, to, only to find that the guy I was trying to doorstep had kind of slipped out. And then, but he very kindly held the, the doors to the lift open so that I could sort of chase him. And, and be, so, I mean, I literally have shadowed him all the way and it's so odd to think that I now sit right next to him uh, day after day, hour after hour, commentating on the bike race that we both love in our different ways. Mm. And how and how does it? You know, how does? I'm always sort of fascinated how the tour works. I've never covered the tour. It's not the sort of cycling journalism I do. So how does it? it I, I just can't imagine how tiring, how hectic, how how hard it is. And you know, do you and David and Gary and Black and and the, you know, Chris Boardman when he was doing it? Do you have your moments? You know, do, does it get tense or is it actually quite... Uh... No, I mean, you know, you're not going to get through an entire tour without having a moment or two. Um, um, that, 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 that's a given. It is very, is very intense. I mean, these, you know, I'm, I, it's slightly boring, isn't it, for journalists who have this wonderful privilege of covering the Tour de France to even even dare to complain about any single aspect of it. So I, I tread with caution here, Rob. But it is, you know, as you can imagine, the days are long. Nowadays, they've switched to, you know, broadcasting the entire race from from rollout to to uh, arrivée. And um, that's a lot of hours of commentating day after day, a lot of concentrating. Um, and and then, you know, and despite the, lo the logistics, the, the kind of like extraordinary, bewildering habit of changing your hotel room every single night and packing up every single morning and moving on... Um, there's always that heart sinking moment at the end of the day when we've come off air, we've recorded the highlights show and everything that needs to be done for that. Then we've done a podcast. Then we've kind of packed up the truck. Um, and then, and only then do we, that we put into our GPS uh, sat navs, you know, the, the coordinates of the hotel that the production company has booked for us that night. And it'll be, it'll be close to the finish line of the next day. And sometimes that finish line can be 360 kilometers of mountain roads away. And you go, oh, what? So the, you know, so just when you think your day is over, you've got essentially to drive from, you know, London to Middlesbrough on country lanes in traffic jams. And that's, that, that is just, that's just brutal after three weeks. Yeah. That doesn't sound glamorous at all. No, it and and it, it makes me wonder, how does Gary Imlach iron his shirts I, I just wonder how he how he does it but well he does he has so gary has a shirt system that's been honed over um i, I, I was hoping i'd get a revelation like yeah this. so i mean gary mack's been doing the tour de france since i think 1905 so the <laughs> second edition um and, and and it's taken him this long to really nail his shirt system so he has he has hanging on 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 wire hangers uh, about half a dozen on rotation broadcast quality polo shirts, uh, which uh, hang behind him in his workstation in the truck that we all work in. Um, but he wears a kind of non-broadcast quality shirt throughout the day. And then when he's ready to go onto the set and do either his highlights links or the live stuff, he then switches shirt. But, but then before doing that, he gets out one of those steam irons, like that, hangs it above his workstation and he gives it the old like that. And um, generally just fills up this really quite expensive and high-tech broadcast truck 
with sort of attritional steam that that drips onto everyone's computer screens and sort of like you know um but it works for him um he, he used to do he, before he got this this gizmo that does it for him he used to he used to be a big advocate of this technique that i've never myself been able to make work where you get into a sh- your hotel room and you hang them in the shower cubicle and you turn the shower to the hottest setting and you run it which is an incredibly bad idea for the environment and not good for the environment and completely and, and ineffective not a good idea for your it show doesn't work. It, doesn't it doesn't work, work does it? doesn't work it doesn't work, it doesn't work. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think I could end the, end the podcast now, um, having got that Gary in that shirt revelation. Thanks, Ned. I mean, for, obviously, for people who have no idea who we're talking about, Gary is the, oh, the sort of the, the main presenter of, uh, of ITV's, uh, ITV's commentary and American football, if I remember rightly. So, uh, day, but, yeah. but yeah, he is as he's part and parcel of of the Tour de France, like you say, in the way that that you and David are now, and Phil and and, and Paul were. So, yeah, ah, that's a good story. Um, and it's kind of completely made me lose my train of thought. But 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 sort of going back to the actual that you know the the the, the moving around the, the country, yeah. and it, it does sound pretty hard. But you know, I, I'm it's worth it, isn't it? Because you must have some you know, favourite. These are probably sort of the questions you're always asked. You know, hey, who's what was your favourite tour that you've covered? Who's your favourite rider? Who's the, who's the most difficult person you've ever interviewed? All of those kind of things. So, yeah. you know, I mean, yeah. uh, and you've probably talked about this um, in in things like Bicology and Tour de Ned, but uh, I'm still going to ask them, you know. So what, what tour sticks out for you and uh, of the ones you've covered so far? I mean... I mean, they all have their, you know, there are some actually, I was about to say they all have their unique characteristics, which is true, but there are some that have just, for whatever reason, kind of disappeared from my horizon. I mean, I can't really remember much about, I can't really remember much about 2010 for some reason. 2008, 2008 seems to have slipped through a little bit. Um, uh, certainly t- my, my second and third tours, with a couple of exceptions, I can remember isolated incidents, but 2004 and five, the last two Armstrong victories were entirely tedious affairs, as far as I recall. Um, the, then, 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 so 2006 and seven were the, were the kind of second generation EPO uh, and then Landis uh, kind of tours. And they were just they were just and Ricardo Rico and all, and they were just you know Alexander Vinokurov, Michael Rasmussen. It was just the they list. don't make them like that anymore, do they? It was, it was, you know, to work as a journalist, and back then I was doing the interviews. They were kind of thrilling. I know I shouldn't probably shouldn't say that, but it was proper, proper kind of like, oh my god, you're literally going to handcuff this coffee disc rider in front of us at the finish line and bung him in the back of a car on the top of a mountain? Are you? That's pretty amazing. Um, they, they were they were insane, but then it all did <clears throat> start to calm down. So I say I can't remember two thousand and eight, but. I do remember it, not not so much for the GC race, which was Carlos Sastra, wasn't it? Yeah, Sastra's year. Yeah, it was, which actually was good, wasn't it? Alpe d'Huez and all that, now I think about it. But 2008 is when the Cavendish kind of avalanche started and didn't relent for the next few years. By 2009, uh, well, Armstrong's comeback, that was, yeah, that was kind of amazing. The La Grande Motte, wasn't it? The crosswinds, that day when um, Cavendish won that stage and Armstrong you know, uh, uh, didn't wait for Alberto Contador in the Astana. That had a, that was a great day's racing. I'm not going to go through them all. I promise, Rob. But what I'm trying to what I'm trying to say is they all do stand out in some way when you try and think about them. But if I had to pick uh, one year, I think I'd probably pick 2011. Actually, um, it was just a brilliant race when you look back on it. It was the year that Cavendish finally won the green jersey. It but it had it had the second spell in yellow prolonged yellow jersey spell of Tom Avukla, uh within it, where once again they got to Plateau de Bay and once again he did, on the same mountain he defended the jersey, you know. Um, and it had a really interesting uh, GC race. It was, of course, the last uh, Tour de France GC race that wasn't dominated to a lesser or greater extent by Sky stroke Ineos. So it's kind of the end. It's kind of the end of an era, wasn't it? In in some ways, yeah, it was. Yeah, I remember them having quite a pretty bad start. I mean, there were high hopes, weren't they? Mm. But uh, mm. it kind of all fizzled out. But then turned into a, like you say, a great race. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, so yeah, they all. But I mean, it's it's not just the race that you, you alluded to at the beginning of that um, beautifully long winded question. That, that, no, that was great. But you know, you talk about the journey around France as well. It's that the longer the longer you do the race, the more this um, or you're part of it, the more this really applies as well. It's the rhythm of passing through certain landscapes, where all of a sudden you, you I mean, I do know them deeply now. I, 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 
I, I'd love if I'd been able to, I would have loved to have seen a map of a GC, my GCS tracker, you know, over 17 tours and superimpose it over a map of France. And it would be just a spider's web of trails, you know. Your Strava heat map. My Strava heat map would be immense. You know, it would have certain hotspots, but it would leave no corner of France untouched. Um, and, and so you do, you know, you kind of like, you go, because you can't see more than about a day or two ahead of you because you can't, otherwise you're trying to absorb too much information. So you do kind of, a bit like the riders stay, take each stage as it comes. And then you suddenly realise before you knew it, you go, oh my God, we're in Burgundy already at stage five. God, I love Burgundy. And ah, oh, we're in Bourg-en-Bresse. And then you go, oh, I remember the last time we, do you remember the last time we came here? I remember that. Do you remember that meal we had? And I went for it, you know, and all that stuff matters immensely to me, which is why I'm missing the race so much, you know? Yeah. And do, do you sort of, I mean, if we go back to 2020, I guess, which is, is probably the main reason we're here, mm. it's sort of, that it's not just the tour, is it? Obviously, the whole classic season was absolutely, was decimated and um, the, the Giro didn't happen. I mean, what has that been like as someone who's, is, whose career now is, is mainly focused around cycling? I mean, that must, it just, it's not just the tour that you've missed and it's not. No. No, I mean the last the last kind of day's work I did, Rob, was um, whatever the date was when when Paris Nice finished one day early, you know, and we just, you know, Max Schachmann won the race, and that was the, that was it. that was kind of it. Now like, I've had I've done I've written some columns <laughs> for Cycling Plus, and I've done I've done other bits and I've done other bits and pieces of writing, but I haven't done, if you like, my day job ever since. I did one of the oh I had to commentate on one of the virtual races awful um move on um i hope that's an that's an experiment we can consign to the dustbin of history now isn't it you know fair enough it's like just like like watching people keep fit it's rubbish just put a gopro up in a gym and watch people on treadmills it'd be more interesting um so uh so that's that so but yeah it really it shook me um and it's been it's been incredibly sad to to watch but i have to say that you know the closer it gets to the resumption of racing the more fragile it feels and the more I'm just holding onto it like this precious thing, which may or may not uh, come to fruition because I, I, I still have my doubts. But yeah, that was something I wanted to, to ask you about because, you know, we publish the, um, the official Tour de France guide, um, uh, which is on sale now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, not an advert, but that was an advert. But, oh, um, yeah, you know, putting enough. that together has been very hard because we've been, we rely a lot on the ASO for that. And they've obviously been in a state of, of flux. Uh, and we've it's gone to the printers our tour de france issue of cycling plus is just about to go to the printers yet you there's still part of me that thinks how can this happen you know we've seen football behind closed doors we've seen horse racing behind closed doors and and tennis where which seems quite simple because you you can lock people out of a stadium and also you haven't got 170 people in very close proximity riding around a country mm. it's gonna happen right well i mean I, go I, 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 I i don't know i don't know i mean the, what, one thing i would say is i think it it depends on the policy in place but i think actually if the and it's not just as you say it's not just the tour de france is it? it's all the italian races that are still on the program plus 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 the tour of poland I and mean, there's a bunch of races borgos is the next one that's about to start um if the authorities said to the race organizers all right you can go ahead but no fans um a i think it would be actually surprisingly easy to police i, I do i think that i think by and large people are reasonably sensible and if the race organizers said you cannot come to the side of the road and support this race then you would have to be some sort of nutcase you know, to, you you really want to do the race harm by support by doing that, wouldn't you? Um, so I think that only a very few people would kind of flout that rule. Um, and actually, it's I think it's very easy to close off a mountain. You just put you just put the police at the bottom, of, and they're there anyway on a on a race day. I don't know how many gendarmes the the Tour de France uses and deploys every single day in a normal thing, but normally they're just standing by each road closure all day on overtime, picking their nose um, with nothing to do. Right. So, but but. But this time, but this time they'd actually have something to do, wouldn't they? They'd say, "You can't stand there. Go home." Um, and I, I, I think that would be. I, so I think you could actually keep people away. It'd be a different matter, you know. I think one of the complications here is the local authorities at the start and finish 
kind of want people to spend money in their cafes and all that sort of thing. So that's where it gets really messy in my eyes. But I think far more risky for for the a three week race as well. It's not a few days; it's three weeks. Is this notion of okay? So at some points, some of the mechanics or the soigneurs or the the, the, the physios or the the, the, the directors sportives, the cook, or the riders are going to test positive. You know, there'll be testing regimes in place. Now, it's probably going to happen. At that point, they must, I hope, have stress tested this and kind of figured out, well, what can we allow? Like if one or two isolated cases, you know, emerge, then we can probably just push on through past that. But if you get if you get it rampaging through a team, what then? You know, um, it's, it's, it's tricky and it does feel fragile. And just the final thing about the crowds, Robert, that, you know, I think football is an absolutely terrible spectacle without crowds. I think it's, I think it's really damaging to the game um, to see it revealed and laid bare for just a bunch of people keeping fit, which is what it kind of looks like a little bit to me. Um, whereas, whereas I don't think that applies to road racing. I think you can have a really good road race and no one there to watch it by the side of the road. I really do. I think it won't harm the TV spectacle particularly. But, but certainly, yeah, I, I, it, it will be interesting. And, and I, we've sort of done some stuff in the mag about the protocol, and it does. It seems as though the sort of the testing regime for the for the for the for the riders and the, sort of the teams, and then the peloton. It seems as though that's uh, pretty well in place. But but yeah, the protocol for any positive tests of a COVID nature. I'm not I'm not sure where that is. So that will let's just just hope it it doesn't happen. But the chances of it happening are, well, I, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not, not sure what the R rate would be out on the, out in the peloton. Um, and there's another, <laughs> you know, there's another byproduct of that, which we saw it happen with the UAE tour and with Paris Nice, both of which weren't raced to completion. Now, like you say, there's every chance that the Tour de France might start but not finish. How does that affect your tactics? If you're a GC racer, like, I mean, it's worth a punt isn't it you know like don't keep your powder dry the Geraint Thomas method the Ineos method wait wait don't burn your matches wait don't go then like wait until the key moments and later on in this in the third week well how about go from the gun <laughs> you know get yourself in the yellow jersey because you might find that's it it would be an interesting tactic but would it be would it feel that would it feel like a win would it with that would that you know of course it would be a win of the Tour de France but if it ended after a week and you're in the yellow jersey I wonder I wonder how that tour would be recorded. Well, that's for history to decide. But I tell you, but I tell you what, whatever happens, whatever happens, um, you know, the winner of, assuming there is one, the 2020 Tour de France will be remembered forever in a way that perhaps I've just struggled to remember who won it in 2008. You'll never, you will never not know who won the 20, who won the September Tour de France. It, you know, it, it, you're scoring your name in history. This hopefully never to be repeated year will completely stand alone and be talked about in a hundred years time. So let's imagine that it all goes really smoothly and, and there are no positive COVID uh, cases and it, and it goes, gets to Paris. What's the racing going to be like? And most importantly, who's going to win? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, let's, okay, let's be positive here. Um, the, the, imagining that, it, I mean, it's, you know, the, the obvious point of difference here is it's in September. The second obvious point of difference is that it's the first of three Grand Tours. So there is going to be no one lining up at the start line of the, and we're talking about the GC race rather than the sprinters. Or so no one is going to be at the start there of the GC uh, riders having already raced the Giro, which is normally two or three of them, isn't it? So there's no kind of inbuilt excuses there. There's no kind of, oh, I can't bubble up. That's not going to happen. So if you're there at the start line, you are presumably there in the best possible shape you could be in. Um, but everyone is going to be lightly raced. So I read today that, that the, the Ineos riders are expecting to have had about six race days. Don't forget the Dauphiné is only five race days this year. Um, so, so, so I think a lot will, a lot will come down to um, how, what you did in March and April, actually, um, when you, the, most of the peloton couldn't even train outside. And I think that will have like really, really hurt some riders' chances because it's not for everyone, as I've just indicated, right? Riding on a turbo only suits certain kind of characteristics of people. And and I think a lot of riders will have just not been able to really dedicate themselves to that. And they'll have been frantically chasing their form um, to kind of catch up with everyone, you know, subsequently. However, other riders really 
really will have benefited from that. The kind of real, real super nutcases of the peloton. That, and I'm thinking specifically of Chris Froome. Uh, uh, yeah, I was thinking that too. Because, you know, I think he's on a real back foot. He's 35 years of age. You know, he hasn't won a bike race for two years. He is recovering from these horrendous injuries. But, but, you know, the lockdown probably suited him better than any other rider in the peloton, you know. Yeah, if anyone's going to spend hours and hours and hours in their garage, it's possibly for him. Um, but also, you know, he, there, there's the other, the, the added story with Ineos and Froome, the fact that th- this is it for him, you know, if it, he is, he's moving on. So he's got something to prove, hasn't he? And probably nothing to lose. Well, I think so. But this all presupposes that he's picked. And I think that, I think, I think, I think it's, I think he's more likely not to be picked than be picked at the moment. We shall see. I mean, I kind of, I do want him to be there for, because it'd just be fascinating. <laughs> uh, and and actually, we sort of touched on touched on it when we were talking about um, David Miller. But uh, you know, you can never talk about pro cycling, and I apologise, but you can never talk about it without talking about the, the the past and doping. But certainly, lockdown has played a bit, sort of played havoc with all of the testing protocols. Not not just COVID testing protocols, but because people couldn't go out there were you know people could not be drug tested and some riders have even complained that they haven't been tested for months i mean am i being sort of overly pessimistic and and, and a typical either journalist or, or cynical cycling fan thinking well you know mm, they some of them will have been naughty no i think you're right i think you're right to flag that up i think it is a danger um uh, uh... But, you know, but then again, let's not be naive. Um, last year's Tour de France, I'm, I'm damn sure that there were riders who had, had microdosed, you know, to, to a lesser or greater extent in that pedal. I'm not going to name names. I haven't got a clue who they might be, but, I, but it'd, be, it'd be insane to suggest that that was an entirely clean peloton. Arguably, it might be one of the cleanest there's ever been, but that's not the same as saying it's clean. Um, so, so there are, I'm sure, riders in the World Tour who um, have doped, will dope, and probably are doping, even as we speak, Rob. But you'd like to think that, yes, they might have seen this lack of uh, anti-doping protocol as an opportunity, and I'm sure they will have done. But what I like to think, or what I hope, is that people who previously hadn't doped, so that the predominance the of, of clean riders haven't sort of crossed the Rubicon as a result of 2020. So in other words, if you were clean going into, or you know, it's a bit of a shade of grey, isn't it? But if you were mostly clean going into um 2020 i'd like to think you're coming out of 2020 with the same sort of set of values in mind you know that's i think that's probably as much as we can hope for i think yeah okay and, and then you're not going to make a prediction now are you who who who, who are you going to be well, but who are you going to be sort of watching who we you know we talked about yeah, Chris yeah, Froome. Yeah. he might not even be there but who who are you sort of excited about seeing in the flesh again I, I, i'm 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 hugely excited about this and all sorts of riders. And, and, you know, probably with respect to them, I'm probably least excited about watching Team Ineos, whether Froome's there or not, because you kind of know their method and you know all about them. So I really want to see how Tom Dumoulin uh, adapts to riding, you know, with co-leadership uh, in a team. I think Stephen Kreisweig is is clearly a, a wonderful mountain domestique now. I think that's kind of his role. So I don't really see it as being a, a trident in that team. But Roglic for me is, is one of the top, top favourites. And and um, if Tom Dumoulin loses time that, and turns, you know, dedicated super domestique, then Jumbo Visma really will take some stopping, I think. Um, Roglic has got it all. He's the modern GC racer, hasn't he? But his young compatriot, this is the other fascination, Tade Pogaccia, takes to the start line of the Tour de France for the first time in his life, just 21 years of age. Um, and he says uh, that he will be riding for his team leader, Fabio Aru. And I don't believe a word of it because I, I think he's <laughs> he's much, much uh, better prospect than uh, Aru. And I think he knows it. And I think the team know it. So that would be really interesting. Um, but, uh, but kind of most of all, I'm drawn to... Uh, I'm drawn to watching Nairo Quintana with Arkea Samsic because he's been the standout racer of 2020 in, in that, those few months of racing that we saw. He, la- he won the last stage on the World Tour. He won the last stage of Paris-Nice. Um, and had he not lost a bit of time early on in the crosswinds, I think he would have won the overall in Paris-Nice to add to his glorious start. So if he's, if he's maintained anything like that kind of form, um, I, I, I've spent a bit of time with Quintana in Colombia a couple of years ago, and I saw a different man from the kind of troubled figure that has we've seen over the last few years in Movistar. He is a wonderful human being um, and, and, a, and a joy, really. And he is, 
despite Egan Bernal's achievements uh, and everyone else who's come from Colombia, Iguita and the rest of them, Quintana is the man. For Colombia, Quintana is still the man. And I think it would be absolutely amazing if he can add the Tour de France to, to the other two Grand Tours and, and just get over the line. He doesn't have to do it again, ever. But mm. just do it once. Just, once. just do it once. Yeah. It, it would be... It, yeah, it would be just rewards, wouldn't it, yeah. for his, if, uh, for 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 the sort of the the joy that he has bought us as cycling fans. Yeah, over and the he's years. much maligned, isn't he? Everyone says he's a wheel sucker, and he's kind of like. But you, 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 he was he was going through in the last few years at Movistar. He was going through some sort of personal hell in that team. You know, yeah, that's become self evident. Even if you watch a bit of that documentary and read between the lines. Um, you know, but it's been obvious how, how dysfunctional that team was and how little support he had for years, and you can see it now because he's been released from that structure. Um, just, I think that'd be, I think that'd be a great story. Um, and then, so, so after the tour, um, what have you got? What have you got planned? Um, I mean, do, will you? You'll be working. We could talk about the road book actually, which is something that you you've put together over the last couple of years, which is a an almanac. I don't know if I've said that right. No, you've or, said it wrong. But, but oh God, <laughs> what is it? Almanac. You, say? you put a random almanac. Y in there for no reason. Almanac. <laughs> yeah, it's an almanac. I don't yeah. know. Almanac. Yeah. I don't know where that Y came from, but um, <laughs> it sounds more fancy the way I say it. I think. <laughs> but you know, obviously, that has been a a, a, a roundup of of the season. What twenty twenties is going to be um, different. It's going to be different. Yeah, it'll be smaller, no doubt about it. Although, if the number of races um, that we think that are scheduled to happen actually happen, then it'll be much less smaller than you might imagine. Um, but that's a bit of a kind of thing. So, no, I'm 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 the editor of the book, Rob. I'm I've I've been working hard on. I've commissioned already kind of five long form bits of writing. Um, which I can't reveal yet, but they're really kind of like fascinating and they do reflect this unique year. So I think, you know, it's, it is one, it's like the wisdom cricket almanac for those who, people who know that, you know, which is a hundred and something, almanac. 140 years old or something. And it's a, it's a collectible item. So this is the third edition. We started in 2018, but uh, uh, this is the, <laughs> this really is the one to buy for the collection because it's just going to sit there as a unique reminder and a completely comprehensive reminder of this absolutely disparate, dysfunctional year. And you'll look back on it in, in five years' time and you go, oh my God, did that actually happen? That's insane. We, we even round up, we're even going to round up all the virtual racing. So there will, oh, be, really? there will be a page of results in there that say something about Kevin Peterson and Mel C., <laughs> and Chris Froome, you know, and you go, whoever what is that? that you know, be. so whoever thought that? So there, there's, there'll be plenty of stuff in there. You know what? You should save that for the digital edition. Just... <laughs> There's not going to be a digital edition. Of it's the opposite of digital. It's the most analog thing you ever buy. But it's a thing of you know. It's a not, it's a lovely thing to have on the shelf, isn't it? And just yeah. to have. Uh, it's not a book to read. Per, per, I mean, it's a book to yeah. take down. And paper. this is the this is the trick. So this applies not just to the road book, but to road racing in general. Um, the further you get away from the event into the future and look back in the past, the greater its um, emotional meaning to you. Right. So already, this is mad, already the 2018 uh, edition of the book, kind of like I leaf through it and I go, oh, man. And it kind of like at the time when I was sort of finishing the book and, you know, putting it to bed and get, going to the printers, it felt very fresh and it felt unremarkable, if you like, some of the stuff that we were putting in there. But it, the longer you cellar it, the more meaning that it accrues, you know, and that is definitely a process that this this roadbook draws down on, you know. Yeah, yeah, and and then moving even more sort of away from the digital edition, the stage show. So we've we've had Biology, we've yeah, had well, uh, Tour de Ned. Well, there, well, I mean, well, will, will you be taking to the boards again, darling? I really hope so. I had a thirty dates in the autumn planned this year, but I mean, months ago I had to just cancel them, um, which in a way turned out to be quite fortunate only in the sense that you know it would have there would have been a horrible clash between <laughs> all these bike races and 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 my you know I, I don't know how that would have worked well it wouldn't have worked um so that was really sad and I had yeah so I'd planned yeah I'd planned a whole show um and I absolutely want to get back and do it I've had this will be enforced year out but I've had two years out from doing this thing that I love with these one man shows. And, uh, but I really, really fear for the, the theater industry now. So, you know, already one of the fabulous venues that I, w that I know quite well, the Nuffield theater in Southampton has closed its doors forever and made 80 people redundant, you know? And, and I think that's just, and sadly, you're going to be the first of many, many theaters. So 
I'll have a show ready, but I don't know whether there'll be anywhere to perform it. I, I do hope you can get get back out there yeah, and, 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 and do it because it's obviously very you know it's been hugely well received. And and did that surprise you? That we, we, you know when you first <laughs> came up with the idea and thought, right, I'm going to go on stage and I'm going to talk about cycling. Yeah. Did you? How, how many people did you expect to turn well, up? Well, there was a bit of that. I mean, it did blow my mind. You know that. So we do, we do a London date and you're in the West End in the same, I was performing on stage in the same theatre where the Michael Jackson's thriller is, you know, there's 1100 people there all packed in and it's, it's a huge responsibility and a great privilege and I absolutely love it. And yeah, it's absolutely insane that it works, but it really does. And I do get the sense now I, I go, I've picked, now I've done it for a few years. I, I know the theatres and the, the, the cities that, that really, really buy into it. And I kind of go back to them as a matter of priority. And I get the sense that there are people who come back year after year and have really bought into the tradition of it. So, um, yeah. And, and it shows the sort of the, the love that has grown for cycling. And that's actually something else that you are, you're currently sort of uh, involved in. Yeah. Um, I've, I've in, we, we've had a, an interview with Laura Laker and Adam Tranter from the Streets yeah. Ahead podcast yeah. that you're the involved experts. in. And that's not pro cycling. That's getting people. That's just about not using the car, really. And Yeah. It's not even just about cycling, Rob. It's about it's about kind of active travel. So walking, walking and walking and cycling. Um so yeah, I mean, increasingly, it's, it's it's how I live my life. I kind of haven't had a car for years and years and years, and I I make a point in all weathers and of getting everywhere I need, either on foot or on my knackered old bike. Um, and I I you know I, I be- believe passionately in it. What I, depresses me about it is how it seems to have been wrapped into these kind of increasing culture wars. So you know, if you present yourself as an advocate for for active travel, all of a sudden that means you are this, that, and that as well you know and so it's what we're trying to do with our podcast is is kind of access and talk to um the the broad sweep of the population who maybe don't haven't considered the alternative don't feel as strongly about it as we do and try and present present them rather than you know hitting them with a stick try and present people with with the, the wonderful carrots that you can of like quieter streets and um active high streets you know where where people can mingle and kind of humanize our cities and our built environments a bit more so yeah i mean i i defer in the podcast completely to the better knowledge of laura and adam but i I am a part of it and i I just kind of ask the stupid questions if you like and and they give the clever answers which has been my job today so um, (laughs) i think i've fulfilled that role pretty well um well ned thank you very much it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you and i can't wait to hear you and david at the end of August on ITV, not Channel 4. No. Um, and, and for the race to, to, to start, it'd be fantastic. Cross fingers. Have a good tour. Cheers, Rob. Thanks. Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much for listening to the Bike Radar podcast. Um, we hope you join us again. If you liked it, make sure you subscribe. If you liked it, tell someone else who hasn't listened to it and hopefully they'll, they'll like it and subscribe. And of course, leave comments wherever you can on our social media pages and visit us at bikeradar.com. Thank you very much. And today we are going to be meeting Ned Bolting. He is probably best known to you as uh, Channel 4, not Channel 4. <laughs> got to keep that in, Rob. You've got to keep that keep in. You've got to keep that in. We'll keep that in. I'm not Channel 4. That's from the top. It's not Channel Rob. 4. I, I always, you know what? I, I always preferred Phil Liggett. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Bike Radar podcast. If you want any more information on what we've been talking about or more news and views on cycling, check out bikeradar.com. Bike Radar.